Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield, and today we're going to be talking about communicating science through stories with Sarah El Shafi. Sarah is a global change biologist completing her PhD in the Department of Integrative Biology with the Museum of Paleontology at the University of California, Berkeley. Sarah is also a science communication strategist and is the creator of Science Through Story, a workshop series that trains scientists and educators to make science more accessible for the masses. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you have such an interesting background, and I think it'd be really cool for our listeners to understand how you got to where you are today. Well, I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm doing my dissertation in integrative biology. I study global change biology, so I study how climate change impacts animals over time. And I also do a lot of work in science communication. So I've been working as a science communication specialist, focusing on using storytelling in science for the last four years while conducting my PhD. And I got to doing this because I got really interested in science outreach and communication when I was in college, actually. And I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in science outreach and education and communication in that area. And when I got into my PhD program, I still wanted to study science and get the highest level of degree that I could just to have that experience, that knowledge. I still wanted to learn more science before focusing on science education. And in my PhD program, as I was getting more and more focused on my dissertation research, I realized that I was really struggling to explain what I was doing to my own family members. And that really bothered me because I loved what I was doing, but I couldn't even make it meaningful for the people that I was closest to. So I decided that I I really needed to work on this. And what started as my own effort to improve my own communication skills became a much larger professional endeavor. And I actually decided early on that I wanted to focus on storytelling because storytelling seemed like the most accessible way to communicate things. Everybody tells stories to each other all day. And that seemed like the best way to try to connect with my family was to do it through telling stories rather than just throwing facts at them. So I thought, well, why don't we actually reach out to professional storytellers and maybe learn from them? I've been a huge film buff my whole life, especially a big fan of Pixar films. So my campus at UC Berkeley is actually very close to Pixar Animation Studios. So I actually reached out to Pixar and to my surprise, got a response from some interested story artists there. And I started talking with them. And what started as just a kind of pilot seminar for the other graduate students in the museum where I'm based at Berkeley, the UC Museum of Paleontology, snowballed into this ongoing collaboration and a whole series of workshops that I developed and now have been running for groups all over the world. Sarah, that's awesome. And that's exactly why I wanted you on this podcast, because it's critical for us as scientists to figure out more effective ways to communicate our findings and our stories. So can you describe a little bit more about what Science Through Story is and where you're planning to go with it in the future? Sure. So the premise of Science Through Story is really that science itself is a search for evidence, but science communication is a search for meaning. And by that, I mean that science itself is a very rigorous process that we go to great lengths to be as objective as possible, to remove as much bias as possible. And that's important for the process of doing science itself. But then when it comes to communicating science, we have to remember that we are sharing information with human beings and we have to bring psychology into that. And that's why 
storytelling is really effective because it puts information into a meaningful context that is easy for people to follow along and easy for them to recall later on. If you don't make the information meaningful for people, none of the information is going to stick. So that's the whole premise of science through story is to communicate science through storytelling and applying that to lots of different avenues. So I work with all different types of scientists, science educators, and not just scientists, actually, anybody who's trying to communicate complex information to others, especially to general audiences. So why do you think it's so hard for us as scientists and not scientists to communicate with others? I think it really comes back to that initial premise that science search for evidence, but science communication is a search for meaning. The science is a search for evidence that is what anybody who goes through scientific training learns, of course, is to search for the evidence and to search for that evidence in a very structured, very objective way. And thus far, I think many scientific training programs have kind of stopped short at the science as a search for evidence, but haven't gone into the science communication part and what that actually requires. So scientists you know, were trained to think very objectively, and so that's how we end up approaching everything to do with our work. And it requires a completely different set of training and a different set of skills to realize that if you only communicate science in an objective, unbiased way, it's not going to be very effective because it comes across as really boring. It's hard to follow. It's inaccessible for people who aren't trained in your field. And it's ultimately not as memorable. So it's a completely different skill set. And I would love to see science communication become a formal part of every scientific training program. And I'm really encouraged to see, even just over the last few years, many science programs are starting to put more of an emphasis on you need to learn communication skills as much as you need to learn the research skills. And how did I get the idea for Science Through Story? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was really inspired by my interactions with my own family members and realizing that they enjoy sharing stories with each other. And so if I want to be sharing with them, that's the way I need to do it, not giving them the abstract version or like the technical scientific written version of my research. Nobody wants, even I don't want to listen to that in conversation. <laughs> I would much rather hear somebody tell me a story about the research that they're doing, even other scientists. So that's what inspired me. And combining that with my lifelong love of film and Pixar and storytelling, it just made sense. And when I first started talking with these Pixar artists, all of the things that they were describing, you know, who is your main character? What is their objective? What obstacles in the way? It was like bread and butter storytelling 101 stuff. And they were concepts that I was familiar with just from watching movies and reading books my whole life. Like, but I had never once thought about applying those concepts to talking about science. But of course, it makes sense. And I can't tell you how many people have come up to me at the end of a workshop and said, Either I come from a humanities background and I never felt like I could actually use that training in talking about science, whether they've been working with scientists or whether they became a scientist themselves, and how liberating and exciting it was for them to realize, oh yeah, I can actually use what I got from this field in this other field, and they work together really, really well. And also how many scientists have come up to me after a workshop and said, you know, I've heard about these things, but it just I never thought about using them. I didn't know that that was an acceptable thing to do. I think for a long time, the general perception was that humanities and sciences have to be kept completely separate, which is ridiculous. I mean, historically, that wasn't even the case. 
I think it's really, really important for everybody to get some basic training and storytelling skills, regardless of what they do, science or, or not, because that's just story is the backbone of all communication. And we all have to communicate no matter what career we're pursuing or what we're doing in our lives. I got into this work, as I said, about four years ago. And in the last four years, there has been a tremendous demand for communication training, especially for broader audiences to try to make science more accessible because the need to communicate science effectively to the public has never been greater. So where are we going with Science Through Story? It started with just kind of a passion project on the side that I was doing while doing my PhD and just running workshops here and there, initially just on my own campus at UC Berkeley for different student groups. And then I was invited to run a workshop at a conference and then students who attended that workshop invited me to run workshops at their institutions and etc and it just kind of grew from there so now i am working with academic and nonprofit and now some private clients as well that are spread out all over the world and as soon as i conclude my phd then i will be doing this work full time as a science storytelling science communication strategist and consultant well congratulations on your successes thank you So I was wondering if you could potentially break down your process a little bit for our listeners. What are some of the most critical things that we should think about when we are trying to communicate our stories? It's a great question. Really, really great question. The number one important thing to consider when you're trying to communicate science, especially through storytelling, is of course, who is your audience? And the more specifically that you can consider your audience the more effectively you will be able to tailor your story to resonate with that particular audience. Even if you're trying to reach a broad general public audience, if you can think about a particular segment within that audience, like if I want to reach people who are not yet familiar with this topic, who live in this part of the country, or who might be inclined this way politically, or may have encountered this but not this thing, the more specifically you can hone that down, the better. Because then you can focus your storytelling efforts and you can focus your communication. And if you do that, you will also be able to reach a lot of other audiences as well, what we call incidental audiences, in addition to your target audience. But if you start by trying to just write a story for the broad general public writ large, it's gonna be really difficult for you to distill the most effective story possible. So I do think it's really good to narrow down your audience when you're starting out. Another important thing to consider is what is the context? Are you sharing this story over a podcast, through an in-person conversation? Are you writing something that will be posted online and other people will encounter it without you there? Are you giving a talk in person or a webinar online? What is the context? How are people going to be receiving this story and how is your engagement with them going to happen? And the other really important thing to think about is what is your primary goal for that audience? That goal might be a specific piece of information that you want people to understand. It could just be that you want people to think that you're smart. It could be that you want people to consider an issue from a new perspective they may not have considered before. It could be that you want them to be motivated to take a certain action. Whatever it is, If you can think about a specific primary goal, always keep that in mind as you're developing your story, it's going to be a lot more effective. And every time I've found myself struggling to figure out how to communicate something, whether it's in an interview or for a talk that I'm giving, or even just thinking about how to have a conversation about a particular topic with a certain person, 
if I find myself struggling with that, inevitably it's because I realize I'm trying to do too much at once. So I force myself to write down all of the things I'm trying to accomplish, everything from I want them to understand this concept and be motivated to take this action and consider this an important issue and maybe be inclined to vote this way on this certain topic and think that I'm cool and I'm smart and I'm relatable and my work is worthwhile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then pick one of those things to focus on. And the one thing that you accomplish with someone, you know, it might simply be getting that person to realize that you are just a human being who cares about the same things that they do. And in some cases, if you can accomplish that, if that person wasn't inclined to listen to or trust a scientist before, if you can simply get them to see you as a human being who cares about the same things that they do, and you also happen to be a scientist, that can be a life-changing interaction for someone. Maybe after that interaction, they would be more inclined to listen to the next scientist that they encounter. You might be the first scientist that they've met. So the more you can focus your goals and the more you can focus your audience, the better. Another really important thing for anybody to consider when they're trying to communicate something, but especially scientists trying to communicate science, is to remember that the most important part of your story might not be what you think it is. In thinking about the target audience you're trying to reach and your primary goal for that audience, it's also important to consider that the most relatable, most interesting aspect of your work might not be what you anticipated to begin with. For myself, if you had asked me five years ago, Sarah, what is your research on? I would have launched into an explanation about how I track body size changes in lizards and crocodilians who lived in the Paleogene in the Western interior of the United States and their body size changed in relation to climate change and, 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 and I've lost you already. To me, that's fascinating. That's really, really cool stuff. But when I started trying to explain my research to people who weren't scientists, even scientists outside of my own field, I realized that's actually not the most important thing for them. The most important thing is simply that climate change influences evolution. And also that you can get information about how climate change affected life in the past by looking at fossils. That is super cool. So now when people ask me, Sarah, what is your research on? I simply answer, I study how climate impacts animals over time. And for 99% of the people who ask me that question, that's enough for them. That's plenty. That's all they really need to know. And that puts that in a very relatable context for them using terms that anybody would be familiar with, animals, climate change, time. Simple as that. If they're really interested, they might ask, oh, that's really cool. What animals? And maybe then I'll talk about lizards and crocodilians specifically, or, or I might talk about the time frame 66 to 23 million years ago specifically. But for most people, that's more detail than, than they really need to know just to get the gist of what I do. And to be honest, once I realized that I could flip that you know, pyramid of information around and start with just the general point and then work down to the specifics if we get that far in the conversation, that was so liberating because I no longer had to worry about making sure that I got all the details in there. I could just pick the most salient one. And in most situations, that's the level I really want to go to with my research anyway. I don't want to get into the details every single time. I really like just saying I study how climate change impacts animals over time. Simple as that. So once you focus your goals and your audience, how do you incorporate something like a character into a story if your research is on, I don't know, you work with paleontology in a museum. How do you get a character into that? Sure. Well, thinking about your audience and what your goal is for that audience then you can start thinking about, okay, who 
would be the most effective character for this story to follow? How am I going to center my communication? And there are plenty of options. Your main character could be yourself. Your main character could be the person who conducted the study if it wasn't yourself. If you're talking about a scientific study, your character could be a stakeholder in that topic or issue. For example, if you're talking about climate change, your main character could be somebody who is impacted by climate change in some way. Your main character doesn't even have to be human necessarily. It could be a non-human character. It could be your research subject, whether that's an animal or a rock or a plant or planet, whatever it is, that can be your main character too. Molecule of carbon dioxide can be a character in a story. Anything can be a character. So thinking about who is your main character and what is that main character trying to accomplish? What is their objective? What is the main thing that they want to do or want to happen? And even if you're thinking about non-human characters, you can still think about that in terms of, well, if my main character is an organism, their main objective is probably to do something that will help them survive. It's to get food or find shelter or find a mate or avoid this threat. Or even if it's you know, a molecule or something, maybe the main character's objective is to bind chemically with another molecule or to move from one state to another. What is the objective? And what is the main obstacle in the way? What is preventing that main character from achieving that objective? Very simple questions to consider, but it's really essential to think about that if you want to focus your story, especially if you're trying to reach a broad audience, especially a Western audience. Who's your main character, objective, obstacle? What's at stake? What is at risk if they don't overcome that obstacle to reach their objective? And then what actions does the character take to try to overcome the objective? What are the outcomes? And now, having said all of that, I will also say that this is not the only way to tell a story. Not all stories follow one character. Not all stories proceed on a linear timeline. Not all stories are about accomplishing a goal. There are many different types of stories from different cultures and traditions all over the world. But when I'm training scientists and science educators to communicate science, I find that this sort of arc plot narrative that Western media uses extensively, any popular film or book or TV show or play, many, many of them follow this kind of storytelling approach. Many, many stories that people around the world are familiar with follow this model. So it's a useful model to start. It is not the only model to use but it's a useful place to begin when you're just thinking about applying storytelling to talking about science. So how are visuals also important in the storytelling? Visuals are a huge part of storytelling. If you're telling a story that has any kind of visual component accompanying it, whether that's a film or an image, a graph, a figure, visuals help enhance both the information that you're getting out of a story and the emotion. How are people feeling about it? And you can use color, tone, the lighting, the shading of the colors that you're using and the shapes that you're using to really enhance people's emotional reaction or to guide people's emotional reaction to something. So if you're using bright, saturated colors, for example, really bright colors that are very different from each other in an image that will get people's attention. It'll make them feel more alert, more engrossed, perhaps even more optimistic or joyful, depending on if you're using like really bright colors, warm colors, so to speak, like yellows, reds, oranges. And then if you're using 
an image that has very desaturated colors that are kind of more dull. The colors are more similar to each other, especially if you're using cooler colors like blues or purples or greens, that can make people feel more detached or more not optimistic or even like just make an image look less interesting or less lively. And there are all different combinations that you can use with the colors and the saturations and the hues and the tones, but that does a lot to guide your audience's emotional journey through your story. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen a scientific figure or a slide in a presentation that did not take these things into account. They were using, you know, arbitrary color combinations that either looked jarring to each other or were just distracting or might not even be recognizable to people with different types of colorblindness. And also thinking about, you know, associations that people have with certain colors or with certain shapes, it makes a huge difference in how people receive information and also how they recall it later. And I think that's really funny you mentioned that because when I attended that workshop you hosted, one of the things that's really stuck with me over the past couple of years is a slide you had with a circle, a square, and a triangle. And you said that characters who tend to have square shapes in them, there's a darker side sometimes. And a circle is supposed to be more inviting. And I've since watched movies and I actually see that being portrayed on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. Artists use those implicit associations that we have with shapes all the time. And those associations come from things that we encounter every day. Faces are round, eyes are round, the sun is round, pizzas are round, like things that are familiar to us or that make us feel happy or comfortable. A lot of those things are round. So round things tend to be perceived as more friendly or approachable or safe. Whereas things that are very solid and secure are rectangular. My door is a rectangle. My table is a rectangle. The windows are rectangular. Blocks and bricks are rectangular. So rectangles or squares can be interpreted as solid and dependable, but they can also be rigid and boring. You know, when you describe someone as a square, that generally means that they're like very, very boring and very inflexible. Whereas triangles, a lot of things that are pointy are triangular. So triangles are often associated with danger or aggression, but they can also be associated with direction or mystery, being dynamic, also having stability. Triangular structures are also stable. So triangles are interesting because they have a broader range of associations. But absolutely, if you watch films, especially animated films, anything with really enhanced character design, you'll find this in every Pixar and Disney film for sure, that the sympathetic characters tend to have rounder features and the antagonists, the villains, will have more angular features. And the fun thing is that you can also use those associations to subvert people's expectations. Like there have certainly been films that where a character was presented with very angular features, very triangular associations, but then that turned out to be the good character and maybe a character that was depicted as very round and approachable and safe looking turned out to be the villain. And I point this out with things in nature as well, that many people are afraid of things like sharks, which is no surprise because sharks are full of triangles. They have pointy teeth, they have pointy fins, they have a pointy nose. Whereas things that have very round features like bunnies, people consider to be very cute and very cuddly. They're also, you know, they're furry and they're soft. So it's no wonder that people really like bunnies and a lot of people are really afraid of sharks. But that doesn't mean that we should kill all the sharks just because they're pointy and they can be dangerous. They're certainly not the most dangerous animals out there. 
And I think it's good to call out these implicit associations and these implicit biases that we have just psychologically. And you can use that to great effect in your communication. Wow. Yeah. And and that applies to any kind of visual that you might be using in your science communication. Even if you're just making a figure to represent data points, consider whether you want to use circles or triangles or a mix of both. It can have an impact on how your audience interprets the data without them even thinking about it. For example, for one figure that I'm using in my own research that tracks where certain animals occurred in a geographic area over time, when there were lots of animals, I might use a circle, meaning that there were lots of these animals at this time, these animals were doing really well, these data points are circles. And then later on in time, several million years later, when there were fewer of these animals, I'll use triangles as the data points for where they were occurring to indicate that these animals weren't as abundant anymore, they were on their way to extinction. Even a simple decision like that in how I visualize my data can really help to tell the story of my research and help that get across to the audience and help them remember it later on, even if they're not fully aware of it. And I think that's such an easy change that we can make to our posters or presentations where our audience might not realize what's going on, but implicitly we're able to make that difference and more effectively communicate our findings. Absolutely. I think what you're saying is so important because I know that I personally struggle with explaining my research because it's so focused on the data and the analysis. And sure, it's about dolphins and some people love dolphins, but it's not about dolphins in a sense that a lot of people are jumping up and down to go read my manuscript. (laughs) I hear you. I mean, I think dolphins are fascinating. They're one of my favorite animals. So I would love to read anything about dolphins. But certainly when you have to put that into a scientific technical manuscript, it can take a lot of the joy of dolphins sort of out of it. And you have to think about it really objectively again. I totally get that. I struggle to make my research interesting too. Even though I study fossils and for a lot of people, fossils are super, super cool already. And you would think, well, you don't have to work hard to make fossils interesting, but I'm studying lizards that lived and died 50 million years ago. For most people, who cares? (laughs) How do I possibly make that interesting for them or at all have any bearing on their day-to-day experience? That's largely why I got into this work because I was trying to figure out how to make any topic interesting to anybody. And I think that's the power of storytelling. If you're telling an effective story, I I could tell you a story about lint or, you know, like (laughs) socks. Uh, But if I'm using good storytelling technique, I could make a story about socks really, really interesting. And, you know, Pixar is the, the, the model of this, that they can make stories about talking dogs and an old guy who ties balloons to his house amazing. (laughs) They can make a story about bugs, super, super fascinating and entertaining. They can take anything and make it an interesting, compelling story by tapping into these universal human experiences and by just using good story structure and, of course, using very powerful visuals. So it's the universal challenge of science. And I think it's important for everyone to remember that whatever it is they're trying to communicate, whatever their topic is, it's going to be already fascinating to somebody, and it's going to be the dullest thing ever to somebody else. But if you tell an effective story, you can capture both ends and everybody in between. Well, if you wrote a story about socks, I would 100% listen to it. (laughs) Maybe when I'm done with the dissertation and I want something lighter to work on. (laughs) (laughs) You've clearly been on a journey over the past couple of years going from just your first presentation to now having workshops 
around the world. Has anything in particular surprised you? Oh, sure. There have been so many surprises along the way. But I guess one thing that stands out to me has been finding that every group struggles with something different. And yet every group faces the same challenges. Each group that I work with has particular challenges that they are trying to overcome, just depending on the work that they're doing or the audience they're trying to reach. For one group, it might be trying to make an inanimate object seem more familiar and more relatable. And for engineers, maybe putting eyeballs on a telescope would be a fine solution to that problem and making it a character in a story. And they would have no issue with that. For a group of biologists, however, if they're trying to tell a story about an animal or a microbe, putting eyeballs on the microbe or telling a story about that animal, they might see that as even more of a challenge, actually, because they're trying to make the animal relatable, but they also don't want to anthropomorphize it too much to the point that they give people the wrong idea about what that animal's doing. So it's interesting. People have different challenges. And yet the fundamental challenges that everybody is struggling with, it's always the same. You're always trying to distill complexity and you're always trying to do that in the most cohesive and compelling way possible to reach a specific audience. In that regard, it's been helpful because no matter who I'm working with, the same issues are at stake and a lot of the same approaches work for lots of different people. And yet one of the most enjoyable aspects of this work for me has been working with so many different groups and I learned something different from every one. Well, I know that's certainly the case for me. I've learned a lot from you today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So if anyone who's listening is interested in having you host a workshop or attending one of your workshops, where can they go to get more information? If you'd like to learn more about my work, including the workshops, you can find all of the information on my website. It's www.sara-elshafie.com sarah-elshafi.com. And on that website, there's some information about the workshops I've done in the past. You can also join my mailing list if you want to get notifications about upcoming workshops and resources, especially workshops that'll be available to the public. We also have a whole series of papers linked on my website. I actually ran a symposium a couple years ago on science through narrative, engaging broad audiences. And that was a full day symposium at a biology conference with both scientists and artists speaking on the same platform about how to communicate science through storytelling from all these different perspectives. And many of those presenters wrote papers that were then peer reviewed and published in a biology journal, but all of the papers are written for a broad readership. I've used these papers in workshops with high schoolers, and they were able to read them and get a lot out of them. So anybody can pick these up, and they're all available open access. They're all online, completely free, and links to all of those papers are on my website as well, along with links to other resources that I recommend, other pieces that I've written, podcasts and webinars that I've been a part of, and I look forward to linking this podcast as well. And we'll definitely link Sarah's website on our social media as well. So um, if you couldn't get that down, you can just click there. Well, Sarah, before we let you go, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Absolutely. For anybody who is just getting started with science communication or storytelling or science storytelling, the one thing I would really want to emphasize is that anybody can do this. Storytelling is a universal human interest and ability. We all tell stories all the time, and it's just a matter of learning how to do that intentionally and strategically to convey specific information and how to do that in an engaging way 
without making the information feel forced and how to do that for a particular audience. The wonderful thing about storytelling is that it is a very complex process that you can build an entire career out of, as many artists have, but you can also learn a lot of the fundamentals in a very short amount of time and you can start using them immediately. And even using a little bit of storytelling fundamentals in any conversation or talk or presentation that you might give, a little bit goes a long way. Because once you're telling a story, even a very simple one, you are speaking in a language that people can recognize. Even if you're actually speaking the same language, it already makes it easier for people to follow along because they're familiar with stories. So I encourage anybody who is interested in communicating any kind of complex topic to learn a little bit about storytelling and just start using it. And don't worry about getting it perfect the first time or even in the first several drafts. Story is an iterative process. So just dive in, start playing around with things and have fun with it and try it out on different test audiences. Share your story with a neighbor or a friend or a relative, especially someone outside of your field who isn't already familiar with your topic and see if it makes sense to them and see if it resonates with them. Ask them, what is this story meaning to you? What are you getting out of this? That's really, really helpful. And whether you spend an hour learning about storytelling, or you only listen to this podcast, or whether you do a deeper dive and go more in depth on this subject, it will always be time well spent because we all have to tell stories in our lives, no matter what we're doing. So I think it's, it's a great skill to learn and it's a great skill to practice. And it's also really fun. Well, I couldn't have put it better. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you so much for having me. And before we leave you, here's this week's Species Spotlight. The Great Hammerhead Shark is classified as critically endangered on the IUCN Red List. It is a coastal and semi-oceanic pelagic shark that can live upwards of 44 years. It only breeds every two years, making it particularly susceptible to depletion from threats such as targeted fishing and bycatch. While the General Fisheries Commission for the Mediterranean banned retention and mandated careful release for the Great Hammerhead in 2012, in addition to adding it to CITES in 2013, the Great Hammerhead has undergone steep declines in its population over time and is slowly trying to make a recovery. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Sarah El Shafi for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, Check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.